I, I just felt like in that moment, I can't move forward in being a physician because, you know, to be honest, what I was, I was fixated on her mortality. And I really thought I can't exist in my old life, you know, after this. Welcome to Moms of Medicine. I'm your host, Allie Trainer, and that was Dr. Kashi Goyle, who is a pulmonary and critical care fellow at Ohio State. Today, we talk about Kashi's experience having a baby with cancer while she was in internal medicine residency. We both realized way too far into the interview that we didn't lead with saying that her daughter, Annika, is now doing great. She is a healthy, happy, thriving three-and-a-half-year-old little girl, but the start of her life was hard. We talk about the day she was born and Kashi and her husband, Michael, immediately knowing something was wrong and how everything changed and spiraled from there. She talks about wanting to quit medicine and how when she did eventually go back, there seemed to be this vast chasm between what her work life and home life were like, how the grief she felt could be so isolating. But today, Kashi, Annika, and Michael are all thriving and taking each day as a gift. I selfishly loved this interview because it was a great excuse for me to catch up with Kashi, but I also learned so much from her in this interview, and so I can't wait to share it with you. Well, it's good to see you. Um, it's been too long and I'm glad to have an excuse to catch up, but yes. um, for people listening who may not know you, if you could just share your name, what you do and um, a little bit about your life outside of the hospital. Yeah. Um, so my name is Kashi Goyle. I am currently uh, going to be third year pulmonary and critical care fellow uh, and a former co-resident of the good doctor trainer. <laughs> um, I have increasingly more time outside of the hospital, so still kind of like <laughs> re reevaluating my hobbies, but have a young daughter. So spend a ton of time with her. Uh, and this year I have decided to fashion myself a suburban gardener. So I love that uh, enjoying the backyard I didn't have in Boston. Uh, and, and I think with some minor success, to be honest, I'm going to have to ask you for some tips because we're trying that too. And, uh, we're struggling. There's we've been mainly just feeding the wildlife. <laughs> right. That's what we did last year. This year we're focusing on small. That's my goal. And then we'll try to scale in the next couple of years, maybe. I love that. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, well, I'm I'm glad I get to ch a chance to chat with you. It's been we were saying kind of three years since we've seen each other in person since you left yeah. for Ohio. Um, but uh, you know, kind of the reason we're chatting is this is Moms of Medicine, um, and you had I think a very unique experience. First, of course, starting off with having a kid in residency. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know if you could just start sharing a little bit about um, that choice. Yeah. I'm assuming it was a choice, but it, <laughs> kind of how that came about um, and kind of what your thoughts on that were. Yeah. I think, you know, above all, I'm a planner. And so yeah. it, it, I'm sure most of your audience and most of your guests, you know, kind of prescribe to the same idea, but, you know, my husband and I thought, well, we have um, this kind of finite window between um, second and third year where we could have a child. Um, and, and to be honest, I didn't want to be pregnant for fellowship interviews, which is certainly not right, but I think there is a bias. And so we thought by this perfect planning that of course we could kind of, um, thread the needle. Um, and so I, I found out I was pregnant sometime during the second year of, of my internal medicine residency. Um, and, and that I think in itself was, was kind of a big decision because, you know, in our program, there weren't a ton of women having, um, having babies. And I think that probably speaks to just how busy the schedule was, but I think even at that time I did kind of acknowledge, I don't know if there's a good time to have a child and it felt like something we wanted to pursue. So we, we kind of moved forward with it. 
And I think, I can't remember if you mentioned this at the beginning, but your husband was in residency as well at the same time, right? So it was between yeah. his second and third year too, right? That's right. Yeah, exactly. So we thought we're going to have a baby, you know, we're going to get pregnant, of course, no problems. Cause didn't account for any of that in our yeah. <laughs> kind of big picture plan. We were going to have a baby. And then our hope even then was to come back. We're both from Ohio. So wanted to mm-hmm. try to transition back to Ohio, you know, for fellowship. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so schedules to balance even then. Oh yeah. It's crazy. And then, so you, yeah, I, th- I think you might've actually been the only woman who had a child in your year. I think I that might me and, and maybe one other person, but at the time, yeah, I was the only one. And then, you know, even I think in the year above me, I'm not sure there was, I guess in your class, I'm not really sure, but yeah, yeah, it just wasn't like something that was, that really permeated our our program. And that can be for many reasons, of course, I Mm -hmm. I think there's obviously a lot of individual choices, but it already felt like I was kind of in a different category at that. Of course. Totally. And so then kind of fast forwarding, so you have your daughter. So tell me a little bit about that. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess I'll just bury the lead. So, um, you know, had a totally uneventful pregnancy and I really thought I had kind of like gamed the system. Pregnancy was easy. I worked until the day I delivered. And to be clear, our program was like incredibly supportive. So I was on kind of an outpatient rotation um, and planned, you know, I guess to speak to my planning, I got induced electively at 39 and three because I didn't want to be pregnant on my maternity leave. I love that. (laughs) induced me and baby will have these like extra weeks together or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I have this vivid memory in the delivery room. Um, <clears throat> uh, my daughter's name is Annika. And so, you know, they put her on my chest. It's perfect. I looked down and her arm looked abnormal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she was swollen and, 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 um, and things look different. And my husband is a, is a, was a pedi- pediatrics resident and I looked at him and I said, you know, something's wrong and, and things really snowballed from there. Um, and to be clear, she was, she seemed, you know, healthy in the moment, but just kind of had an abnormality on exam. And I remember being faced with the decision of like, should, you know, Michael stay with me or should he follow her? And so, uh, I sent him to be with her and, um, they called in a bunch of, you know, I don't know, as it escalates in hospitals, you know, first it was the, the NICU and, and that's where she was taken. And then, um, they had a surgeon come and a, and a dermatologist. And the big concern was that she actually had, um, a vascular tumor, yeah. uh, of her arm. And the, the, the decision was made, I don't even know, maybe like six hours of life that she was going to wow. go to Boston Children's. Oh my God. Which was nice because of course we were close by. And so it felt like what a blessing that we can get her the care that she needs. But then, you know, we were faced with things we didn't anticipate. We had asked our parents not to come to Boston for the delivery because we had envisioned, you It'd know, be fine. Week, yeah, everything was going to be per- perfect. And me and Michael and Annika were going to have this like I don't know, like little baby moon. Yeah. Yeah. This little bubble family. Mm -hmm. Um, But of course I sent him with her. And so I found myself, um, I I should say only semi alone uh, after the delivery, because um, one of my, my best friends that, that obviously I remember (laughs) um, (laughs) the night with me in the hospital, but I, as much as I love, you know, Kavita did not anticipate spending the the first night with her and not with my, my husband and my Mm -hmm. child. So I think that was the first point that things felt really different that now we are what I expected and where we are, the gap is increasing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so then you're kind of separate 
and you do eventually find out what's going on with her. So like, how long did it take until you had a better idea of what you guys were facing? Yeah. You know, I think things move on hospital speed, right? So like every oh, yeah. day you got like one more piece of information. So, um, she got an MRI when she was there. And I think, you know, my husband and I, we hear like those keywords. So she had an infiltrative mass, you know, concerns for chest wall involvement, irregular borders. She went for a biopsy in the next couple of days. We're now like a week into our NICU stay. Um, and when they biopsy, you, you know, we're expecting, we have really been prepped up until this point, um, even with the MRI findings that it's probably a benign, like vascular tumor. And we get the preliminary pathology when we're in the hospital. Um, and, and, and basically in, in no short term, it, it's, it's a cancer, um, but we don't have any more information. And then, you know, we're sent home because she's otherwise healthy, right? We are yeah. stuck in this like weird juxtaposition of like, objectively, she's fine, but we're going to sit with this unknown diagnosis. Uh, and we sat with it for a couple of weeks until all the, you know, cytogenetics came back. And ultimately it was, and I had said in that meeting, I looked at them and I said, there's no benign diagnosis left, right? This is it. And, and, you know, and that's where it was. So yeah, she ends up being di diagnosed with a um, congenital rhabdomyosarcoma. Which from what I remember is extremely rare. It is. So um, I think rhabdomyosarcomas is, are not uncommon, you know, sarcomas in a pediatric population, but like when you got down to the nitty gritties of it's congenital, and then she had some like very specific mutations, we're now operating in like one in a million chances. And at this point, wow. I really felt like the whole world has stopped. Yeah. And so your world has stopped and fortunately you are on maternity leave, mm -hmm. but you're kind of, your daughter's in the NICU, you're at home. So what was, what was that like? And then how did things kind of move forward for you? Like what came next? Yeah. So I actually, um, I left, I did not leave AMA. I left as a, <laughs> um, early suggested by me discharge. <laughs> and then I, um, I stayed with her every moment, um, because I really wanted to maintain normalcy in any way that I could. So I made the decision that I wanted to breastfeed her. And that was really important to me and kind of latched on to that. Mm -hmm. So we stayed together in the NICU. Uh, and then when we got discharged home, we followed up with oncologists and then, and that's kind of where our lives moved from there. She started chemo. The, the first admission we had after that, she was 10 days old. Wow. And she had her, she was too small for a port. So we oh. got, you know, some sort of tunneled line put in and we started chemo that night. At 10 days old. Yeah. Wow. And we, you know, we're meeting with all these people and, and, and really what I'm asking is like, I want the end, right? Like I want to know. Yeah. And, and nobody can give you that. Right. I think we cognitively know that as physicians, but as a parent, I'm asking for a crystal ball. Of course. And what, what were they able to tell you kind of odds wise? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I asked, so I think this probably speaks to some of my clinical interests, but most yeah. importantly to me was her quality of life. Yeah. So I think we kind of asked the backwards question, which is, um, what if we do nothing? Yeah. You know what happens? And they told us she would probably die within the year. That's really hard. But they, you know, gave us some hope that, her mutation um, is actually really favorable that we're working in this kind of world of case series, but for those kids who had it, um, all but one were alive at five years. Wow. I just have to say too, that's, yeah. I know we're both critical care doctors and I've worked yeah. with you in the ICU and we share those, those common interests of, you know, quality of life, but I can't imagine having that conversation and thinking about that for your 
baby. Like that must've just been an added layer of impossibility. I think it was just a level of, of just being like so surreal, like this can't be real. Even, you know, the pain of telling people around us was immense because we had had, you know, such an uneventful everything leading up to this. And it honestly felt like such a failure on my part. Like it Mm -hmm. felt like my, the funny thing is like, Michael and I talk about this sometimes people would ask like, do you want to have a boy or a girl? Mm. And we'd say, we just want to like a healthy baby. Yeah. It just felt like the job I had, like, you know, you could, other people probably feel similar. I felt like my job as a mom is to keep my child safe. Yeah. And I can't, I don't know how to do that in this moment. Yeah. I'm hoping you could share just a little bit more. You said, you know, you felt like a failure. And I think we know as physicians, some of these things are out of control, yeah. but there's this emotional human aspect that you just can't wrap your head around. Mm-hmm. And so I'm hoping with that lens, you could just share a little bit more about those feelings you had. Yeah. I think I thought that, you know, having a child and having a healthy child was, was kind of the norm. And so then, then to be in a place where I didn't have a healthy child, um, I really felt like, what have I done wrong? that led to this moment. Mm. And I, I didn't feel embarrassed because of course that's my child. That's my pride and joy. But I felt, I felt a little embarrassed that this is like, I don't know, embarrassed in the sense that like, there was a lot of like, like pity and being horrified around us. And like, not many people could sit in that weird grief with us. And it yeah. really was, I think, an isolating experience and very few people in our lives. And it's absolutely to no like dishonor to them could kind of tolerate that discomfort and sit with us in that place of unknowing. And yeah, I'm, I'm sure all of us have been in that place in our lives where you have this really unique experience. And, and really what we were looking for from people around us is empathy. And, and we got a lot of sympathy, I think. I think that's an important distinction, which is really hard in the moment. And, you know, when we were kind of chatting before, one thing you shared with me um, was that kind of going through this process, we're kind of jumping forward a little bit. There's a lot that happens in your story, but there's kind of, um, and I'm sure there's like, you know, throughout your story, there's multiple things that made you think differently, but you talked about how um, it has impacted the way that you address patients in these difficult scenarios. Mm -hmm. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about that because we do oftentimes in the ICU and with advanced lung disease, you have patients and families in these horrible situations Mm -hmm. and we are sometimes tasked with sitting with that. And I don't know if you find it easier now, or if you're just, you know, more accepting of it. I I don't know how that's changed your perspective. So I definitely don't think, you know, I think the best case scenario is at the end, I would say now I know exactly what to say to people because this is what I want. But really, I think what it's highlighted is I don't know how they feel. And I don't know what to say. Uh, And sometimes saying that is probably the best thing or saying that these are impossible decisions. And I can understand not wanting to make any of them. Yeah, definitely. I'm curious too, you mentioned kind of, it was hard, you know, people not wanting or not, not that they weren't wanting, but they're just not physically being able to sit in those moments with you. So I'm imagining your husband was probably a big support but I'm also wondering with that too, I'm guessing he was a resident. You were imagining mm-hmm. a healthy baby. What was he planning on taking for leave? Yeah. And how much time was he actually able to spend with you guys? 
So I, you know, the beauty of pediatrics is I think the culture in general is um, just more positive for that kind of family life and equity in that. Mm. So his program had already, I can't remember all the details now, but he had already, you know, they had people do kind of a breastfeeding elective that allowed them to extend their time. And we had worked at a scenario in which I was going to take a leave. We were going to take a couple of weeks up front together. Then I would take the majority of my leave by myself. Then he was going to take an additional four weeks. I think he was going to end up having six to eight weeks. And then my mom is actually planning to move to Boston and she was going to be with us for the last six months of residency. Wow. Um, just to, that's a good mom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just to, to support us. But, you know, when we found out how sick Annika was, you know, everything stopped. And that was another weird thing is being a trainee, you know, I think for people of normal jobs, you say, I'm going to take a leave and you just leave it at that. But there's so many nuances to being a trainee and there's other people's schedules that are inadvertently intertwined with yours that we felt, you know, even in that moment, the best thing we could do is, is be honest and tell our programs. And I remember, obviously, Dr. Trainer knows our, our former program director. Mm -hmm. and, um, I remember he came to Boston Children's to meet with me and I said, that um, I was going to quit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How did, how did that go? I'm sure. I know um, not a question you ever imagined having with him. Yeah. I will say as a side note, Kashi was an all-star intern and the <laughs> last person you would expect to ever utter those words. Uh, so that was probably a, a hard moment for both of you. Yeah, it was. You know, I, I just felt like in that moment, I can't move forward in being a physician mm -hmm. because you know, to be honest, what I was, I was fixated on her mortality. And I really thought I can't exist in my old life, you know, after this. Of course. I actually remember having a, a conversation with you. I think when you were, you were back by yeah. this point, and I remember asking you like how things were going and you just said, you know, I don't know how much time we have, but we're just going to make the most of what we have, which was, I think, impressive to say about your, your baby now having, having, having a child, I can't imagine having to come to that, but sorry, I'm kind of like circular getting around here, but I feel like what I'm picking up on what you're saying behind your reasoning for thinking of quitting is you thought maybe you had a year. And so then to think about spending some of that time at work yeah. must've been incredibly difficult. It was like the, the like fastest snap to reality, you know, cause I think in medicine, especially, it's a very linear path, right? You do one thing, you go to medical school, then you go to residency, then it's fellowship, and then it's a job, and everything moves forward. And I, I really think there is a bias against deviating from that, right? That there's like a negative connotation that if we don't have these linear paths, that there's something wrong. But in that moment, I thought, I don't care. I like being a physician, but nothing matters more. Like this is a job and doesn't owe me anything at the end of the day. But then you, you're kind of faced with reality, right? Which is, I can't get a job. It, you know, all my training has led to this. And so I don't have a lot of options and you're worried about insurance. And I guess to answer your earlier question, you know, Dr. Smith's answer to me was, let's just pause, right? Let's mm -hmm. just take a beat. And, and, you know, told me that if it takes me 10 years to finish my residency, that I should, you know, think about in some way, kind of holding on to, to at least some of that, even if it's just from a logistics perspective. And, mm -hmm. and so really what we did was, um, I think for the first time in my life, I just paused. I just put everything on pause. So the, I took um, an FMLA at that point and I didn't have a return date initially. Mm -hmm. We 
started really intense chemotherapy and, and not that I know anything about pediatric oncology, but it's all, you know, kind of protocolized. And in her, in her protocol, it was 56 weeks of active chemo. Wow. And, uh, and plan for resection after, after nine weeks. So we said, kick everything down the road after her surgery. We'll see if, and when I come back. Okay. And so I think if I remember correctly, I think you did come back before then. So how did that no, I did not. Oh, you didn't. I, okay. I was supposed to come back after her, um, or before her surgery, right before her surgery. And then, okay. you know, we were talking about, um, you know, taking a leave again and, and again, because I just had an immense amount of support behind me. I just stayed home. Okay. Until, so you ended up taking about a year away from residency. I think medicine. in total, I took five and a half months okay. away of what was intended to be, um, an eight week leave. I see. Okay. And so then what was it like for you going back and what, what kind of was Annika's, you know, life like when you went back? Yeah. So when I went back, she was not healthy. There were, um, but I really felt like I just didn't want any more. I just wanted to go back and do my job and try to compartmentalize as much as I could. Um, you know, she, she made it through her, her surgery and, and that was scary and kind of filled with its own complications. But when we got home on the other end, we actually got a couple week break from chemo. Mm. Um, and so it was in that time that I, that I went back, but I was basically living this like weird dual life in which when I was at the hospital, I just tried to stay in my lane do my work. And, and obviously always want to do your best. Cause I didn't want to do a disservice to my patients. And I think that made things difficult too, right? That there are big implications and ramifications of, of the choices you make. So I did try to be really cognizant and I felt like I was, I was okay to be at work. Um, but there were lots of days where I would go, my parents would have taken her for chemo and I would run over during the worst part or, wow. you know, I had these like vivid memories of being in sim sessions and getting a call from my mom. Like she needs another transfusion. Like, can you come over and consent? And the, the, I guess the beauty is that she got all of her treatment at the Dana Farber, which, you know, for people to right across the street, right across yeah. the street. <laughs> so I'd go back and forth, but there was a lot of unexpected things. And, um, and I t- ended up taking, you know, throughout that remainder of, of that next year, I don't know how often I was gone. Mm-hmm. Because lots of things come up, you know, for obviously your physician listeners, there's, we had line infections and bacteremias, yeah, the flu. And there was, I think, not a, certainly not a month and sometimes not a week where we weren't hospitalized. Wow. Because we had, you know, as all the moms knows, you, you can't force a baby to do anything. No. <laughs> in the best of scenarios. And, mm. and I think maybe you, you, you can't, and, and time at home was hard too. You know, she was sick and she had a lot of symptoms, I suspect. Mm. Um, and so we'd be up all night. I was going to ask her. about that. Cause I feel like with a healthy baby, you're exhausted and up all night. So like, what was your life like at home with her? It was, you know, this, we, we tried to adhere to a schedule mm-hmm. cause she had, you know, medications she was taking on a schedule and, um, even like small things, like her, her line was so small. So she had, we had to wake up every eight hours and heparinize the line. And then, like I said, a high symptom burden. So 
sleep was really difficult. Um, and we tried to work in shifts and it got really hard that my parents actually, both of my parents ended up moving to Boston um, and getting an apartment down the street. And there would be nights I would call my mom sobbing at 3 a.m. Like, I just, I can't stay awake any longer and I can't get her to fall asleep any other way than upright in a chair. Yeah. So we used to set alarms overnight to try to rotate and my parents would, you know, show up in the middle of the night and literally just sit there, sit yeah. in our pain. And You're my very good mom. Wonderful as well. <laughs> you know, my parents are retired, so I had a little bit more flexibility, but um, Michael's parents would drive the 12 hours from Ohio to spend 24 hours with us if that's all they could do. That's incredible. You're, you you both have very good parents and are, I'm like tearing up a little bit right now just because you're such a good, <laughs> a good mom. <laughs> I, well, I think it's like, it's survival mode. I think to be very yeah. clear, our parents, our, our sisters, our, our close yeah. friends, like just showed up. There was just no question. And I think the, the thing is when you're in those situations, like you don't know what to ask for. So the people that you need are the ones who just do. Yeah. And that's what we had, but we were just in survival mode. And I think in that sense, being task oriented was, was kind of helpful, right? It was, we're going to do this, this day. And we just kind of clung to that chemo schedule and, and we're literally counting down the days. And you could tell like everybody's mood kind of flowed with those schedules. Like we all knew which ones were the bad day, like, you know, which regimens made her feel worse or, or better. And, but we, we kind of look back because we laugh now because all the pictures of Annika, she's smiling like through all that time. Yeah. She was, okay. which is a testament to her, not to us, but <laughs> it, it just like looks so different now than it felt that. Yeah. I'm going to put that out there, but I think it's a little bit, at least a little bit of testament to you guys as well. <laughs> you can have a little bit of credit. Um, but it is, it's striking listening to you hearing about what was going on behind the scenes. And I mm. saw you at work during this period and you were, you were present and you were a good physician to your patients. Like you said, you know, you, you kind of had to do what you had to do. And I'm wondering if in some aspects, it was a good mental break. Not that our job is mm. easy and, you know, restful in any way, but if it was a good mental break and, and sometimes potentially, more taxing. Like, you, you know, like you're mentioning you're, you're in sim with your colleagues and like, we're talking about most of your colleagues don't have kids or responsibilities yeah. like that. And so you're getting texted about consenting for transfusion and your sick baby while your colleagues have like, in hindsight, really not many <laughs> responsibilities. So I just, I don't know if you could kind of reflect a little bit more on what that was like for you. Yeah. It felt, you know, at times it felt like I was also, you know, sometimes it, I definitely got stuck in that why me place of this just feels like really unfair and that we're just so in a different place than what we anticipated. And and sometimes I, I felt really resentful, even, you know, everyone was trying to be kind, obviously, and say like, you know, we're just so impressed you're back. And but I think time as time goes on, it's it's more of a question of like, but why did I go back or why did I have to go back or why are we you know, kind of praising people who push forward when really I think everything around them is telling like pause, like run for the hills, like protect yourself in this moment. And obviously there's a lot of logistics and things that you kind of have to balance. So I don't know the answer, but I guess I would encourage people to, to do what feels right in the moment. And if, if that means taking a break, I can speak to that, that I am in no different place in my career, to be honest now, than I would have been if I had kept going. And I know I'm a different person. And I know that the way 
I interact with people is different because of that. Yeah, no, I think that's such a good point. And it's interesting to hear you reflect on that now, because I would love to know what like Kashi as the pre-med student would think, you know, in terms of not, not the specific scenario and reason why you took a break, but you know, we just get such in this mindset of you must do med school residency. And like you say, we just push through and I'm, I'm wondering too, like how you feel now about when you went back, like, do you think that was the right time for you and you feel good about it? Or were you like, no, I, I don't have any other marketable skills and <laughs> this is yeah. kind of the job I have to do. <laughs> yeah. I think med school me probably would be horrified, right? If you just boil it down, like, oh, you stayed home for your kid and your family. Cause I think that there's like, I don't know, in, in maybe in, in female physicians and probably less so as time goes on, there's like a little bit of like, you got to be steel plated. And, um, and even if you want those things, I don't know if we always celebrate people for saying like my values, the things my core values are, you know, cause as time grows on, I know my core values are personal growth, innovation in my family. And I feel comfortable now saying that, but I don't think I felt that way 10 years ago. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that, that would have felt really different. Yeah. I don't know if I went back at the right time. I just did. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, obviously, you know, the pandemic then happened yes. in the back half. And, um, I yeah, actually, sorry, I'm trying to remember what was the timing. When did you have Annika? So I came, so I had her in July of 2019, 2019. Okay. Came back in December of 2020 to the MICU actually. <laughs> and we were starting to have like hypoxic patients for like kind of unclear reasons. Mm-hmm. And um, by, I don't know, I guess it's all blurring together now by January or February, right. The, the, you know, kind of the recognition had really expanded and then, um, but there was a lot of unknown with that too. Mm-hmm. And so I was faced with a decision where, um, our program, I think very kindly asked, are, are there people who feel uncomfortable, you know, treating patients with COVID? And at that time, Annika still was neutropenic and was sitting at home with, you know, zero neutrophils and zero platelets. And I thought the best thing was to be honest. And I said, I, I don't know in this early period, it, I don't know. I don't know what that yeah. would mean, but I know if she got, you know, an overwhelming virus, then I suspect she would not survive. Mm. So, so I actually was able to transition to an outpatient role for the, those kind of, um, and I, and I, when her counts recovered, I, you know, told them and I went back to the unit, but in that moment, took a step back again. Mm-hmm. Um, but Michael wasn't able to do that. And so he continued to work through the pandemic. And that was kind of a whole other layer of nuance. Like now I'm worried that, you know, I'm starting to face my child's mortality or I've been confronted with it. Mm-hmm. And then like all other, I think residents and, and, and other trainees now I'm wondering, is my husband, you know, gonna, gonna yeah. be okay. And so did you guys have to separate from each other at all while you were going through the pandemic? So we, um, I think there were a couple of times where he stayed at my parents' house. Anytime anyone was ill, we would put them in quarantine in the second apartment. Uh, and then he would, we just had this like regimen. Like I think everybody else had at that time. No outside clothes came into the house. He didn't touch Annika until he had showered and, and sanitized. And um, and so in in that way, when people were kind of masking and, and hoarding and and worried about germs, I thought, we've been doing this for months now. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I'm a pro. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I already don't want to see anyone because yeah. of a child. So yeah. I'm wondering too, um, like how you feel about 
how much you need to, or should share about your home life at work, because, you know, yeah. this was like the very obvious situation where you're like, I have a neutropenic baby at home. And yeah. if you're offering this, I, this is why I need to take mm-hmm. it. But just, so that was like an extreme example, but in general, it seems like maybe it's not so healthy to keep up a complete wall, but yeah. if, at the other side, like you're entitled to your privacy and, you know, you don't have yeah. to share everything with everyone. So I don't know how you feel about that and kind of like, you know, how much should we share? How much should people expect to know? And yeah. I think my, my, uh, what I recommend to others is probably different than what I practice. <laughs> I, you know, I've really struggled over the last couple of years with that idea. And I think obviously you've seen, you know, some, some tears during mm-hmm. this, but it was just so painful. I just couldn't, I just couldn't share. And so really, you know, for me, especially in those early times at work, I, the only people who I talked about anything with were people who already knew or, or were really close. But for me, from a self-defense perspective, it was easier just to keep everything surface level. I don't think that that's the healthiest way forward. Even now though, you know, I guess to, to make sure everyone, Annika is, is thriving. I know. I realized as we were having, I'm like, oh my I God, know, I should have started with the that. anxiety. Maybe I should have yeah. led with that. She's that's okay. I'll put in a, 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 yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and thriving. But I still feel very um, hesitant because I think it colors the people, the way people view me sometimes. And mm-hmm. I, I think I'm really like hypersensitive to that sympathy element coming in. My husband's on the other end of the spectrum and definitely like shares. And I think for him, it's, it's a sense of normalcy. Like there's nothing wrong with what we experience. This is our journey. That's what, you know, that's kind of what Annika has been through. That's what we've been through. And it's a part of our family's identity. And I think in in some ways, I wish I was more like that, but there, that's a big bridge to cross. But I think for other people, for things that become core values, the things that shape your identity, you know, you, you, sh- you should feel empowered to share those things. And when we say at work, I think when you're a physician at work, there's this extra level of professionalism or barrier or distance that we keep from each other. And, and maybe that's why we burn out, uh, or maybe that's why people aren't as satisfied that because we've siloed these parts of our lives, kind of thinking that there aren't connections. Yeah. Why do you think you and your husband have such different perspectives on the same experience? I think some of it is our personalities. Yeah. (laughs) He's like, you know, an extrovert and and he's a processor and like wants to talk about, and I just want to control. And so I think I've had a hard time, not a hard time controlling my emotions, but I have a hard time I'm having a hard time processing, right? Like as things slow down years later and you're kind of left to pick up the pieces, that takes work and effort. And, and, and sometimes I, I think it's, it's easier not to, (laughs) to do that. Yeah. Of course. No, of course. And so then you mentioned Annika's now she's three and a half, she's driving, but where we kind of left off with things is you're in the pandemic, she's still neutropenic. So how, how did things kind of progress with her? Um, you know, whatever you want to share, like in terms of how she did, in terms of how yeah. you progressed through residency. So she, things got easier with time, whether that was, we just, our expectations had changed, which I, I think they did. And and so like, we just could feel things a little bit more easily. Like we got into this routine, like hospital bags ready to go. Michael and I got used to sleeping in the hospital and being ready to trade off. And so it became easier to manage as time went on. And as she got older, you know, I think her, her symptom burden decreased a little bit. The intensity of the chemo eventually started to space out, but there were still a lot of ups and downs in that, 
you know, she ended up with a feeding tube. And we talked a little bit before that I really wanted to breastfeed her. Mm-hmm. And I had really kind of latched on to like, this is the only thing good that I can provide for my child. Um, she, she got too sick and, and, and was in a lot of pain, so couldn't direct feed, but I actually started exclusively pumping. And so, um, and I just kept doing that sometimes to my, I, I don't know if yeah. obviously breastfeeding is, I think difficult for anyone, I, I guess so I hope that's yeah. not an overstatement. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but did that. And even in, you know, when she was being tube feed, we continued to breastfeed her, but, mm-hmm. um, lots of ups and downs. And then, um, we were just at the end, then all of a sudden yeah. you're a year out. Um, and, and now the tone starts to change, you mm-hmm. know, with the oncologist and our oncologist was wonderful. She's one of those big picture physicians where like what you say, what they say you believe, even though it's not, you know, they can't say that all the data would say this, but just their gestalt and hers was always right. You know, when we initially, when we got the diagnosis of stage three, based on the size of the tumor, but she had an immense response to chemo. And initially the plan was amputation. And, and then, but doc, but our oncologist said, yeah, I think things are going to be okay. And they were. And then as we get towards the end of treatment, um, you know, she's starting to say we can, you know, we're looking for any kind of like crumb of hope in terms of moving forward. And I remember asking her like really leading questions. Like, so you think like Annika could be here for a while. And just the first time hearing her say, yeah, I think that she could be here for a while. Um, Mm. felt like we had turned a leaf, like there was like a way forward and, and, and really things just started to get easier from that point. Like the milestones started to rack up, right. You know, we're a year from diagnosis. We made it to maintenance chemo. Cause even that was a saga, you know, try giving a, I don't know, 12 month old oral cyclophosphamide for <laughs> six months. Like I can't, I truly can't imagine. Yeah. <laughs> and then we got to the, I think the most, you know, the biggest triumph for us was the day her line came out. Cause there were little things we had lost in, in terms of our like newborn journey. Like I'd never given her a bath, like submerged her in water because you can't get the line wet. Right. We all know that I can conceptualize that. And she's little. So they had given us these, like, honestly look like a little, she would wear this little tube top to like keep the line, like clean. The I know I'm laughing. I shouldn't laugh, but it's like, no, it was so like, like, yeah, she just was like a little poo bear. She was, she always had this like tube top on. And when her line came off, the first thing we did, um, was give her a bath, you know, and to see her submerged in water, we thought, oh, like this is, or to rub her back and to feel her skin. That's really, it was just like, these like profound, but like small moments that started to, to, I don't, yeah, I think equate to hope at that point. Mm. And then it was, it was just, it just, as time progressed, it became longer and longer since we had a setback. And and then, you know, when we asked our oncology team, what if we moved to Ohio to kind of move on with our lives and they gave us a blessing. And so that's when we decided that it was uh, time to reapply to fellowship, I guess, in the process of all this, the other thing I didn't mention was that I had applied to fellowship as a mm-hmm. part of my immense planning. I, I was this, pregnant, yeah. <laughs> getting ready to deliver, and I submitted my ERAS. And I mm-hmm. thought, all right, postpartum, I'll start scheduling interviews, and uh, and ultimately had to withdraw, obviously, from the the fellowship match. Um, mm-hmm. So I think getting to the next year's fellowship match was was the uh, first. I guess, career step that I decided to to take during that time. I just wanted to ask you, you, you detailed out 
so beautifully kind of the transition forward and starting to build hope. Um, it feels like a huge move to say, we think we're asking, is she well enough to Mm -hmm. move? Was that kind of the transition point for you guys where you were like, okay, maybe we can be okay and move forward with a quote, normal life. Yeah. By the, you know, by that time, or when we applied to fellowship thing, she had finished I guess all the details are a little hazy, but we'd have like reassuring scans. Like there wasn't any sign of recurrence. Um, and so we had asked about, you know, where we should think about fellowship. And that was the first time the, you know, the oncology team thought, yeah, like, you know, at this point we're monitoring and that can happen, you know, in, in Ohio as well. Um, but when we moved here, like when we like made that transition or even we came out to like, I don't even like house hunt or something, um, having her leave Boston it was, it was just, I think probably one of those core memories, like seeing her at my sister's house and with my parents and thinking about talking about preschool and kindergarten and thinking about, you know, I used to, I used to um, be really fixated on whether or not I'd ever hear her say, I love you. And we, got to that obviously and then we're getting all these other cool things and starting to transition into normalcy like the things we were doing was just watching our kid like experience you know a pool or being with family members fireworks like all these things that you know are just like within our reach now and I feel like those are the types of things now I'm like forever seeking experience as I think Veronica like I just want her I just want to watch her do things for the first time. And I I just never want that feeling, you know, to end. Yeah. It's really hard. You're a good mom. And I will say from having seen her on Instagram, she's the happiest little girl. (laughs) Oh yeah. She's like an Instagram star. Like she's so cute. She brightens my day. She's just like from a different world. She, (laughs) she truly, she's, I I know like Instagram is everyone says Instagram is not reality, but I love seeing the little photos of her. She's always (laughs) so happy and looks like she's such a, got such a little personality. She does. She's just, I don't know. I, I think, you know, she should be fearful, right? Like, or, or hesitant, but she's not, I don't know what happened. She's like decided that like new experiences or, or new things, like you know, my favorite thing, we'll ask her, like, do you want to do something? And she's never done it before. And she just says, yes. And like, we'll for days ask, like, after this nap time, will we get to go to the beach or or whatever? It is. <laughs> That's so sweet. <laughs> but she, um, yeah, you know, when she was young, she's, she's always been really special. I know every parent feels that way, but, yes, but, but she is, but she I think is. she, I think she is. <laughs> uh, and I used to say, you know, early on, like, oh, I just think she's like, just, she's just too, she's just too perfect. Like for this. Yeah. Like that's why this is all happening. But now I think that's like, she was resilient. Like it wasn't about, you know, Michael or I, or yeah, she's here for a reason. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, you've shared a lot and I think a lot of people will benefit from this, even if they don't have a similar experience, there's so much you've learned along the way, but, um, if, you know, just to end on, uh, where you guys are now and if there's any other things that you think you've reflected on in hindsight that, um, are particularly poignant for you or that you really want to make sure you share. Yeah. You know, I think now we are, you know, profoundly happy and content and, and we're a unit and my daughter is healthy and happy. Uh, and our biggest problems are the usual, right? The mood swings of three-year-olds. And I feel 
um, feel really blessed that that's where we are. I think my sister and I were talking the other day and said, I wish I could send my old self a reel now just mm-hmm. to, to, to have something to move forward. But I guess the things that I w- would want or want to emphasize for myself and for others is I think it's okay to be honest when we're, we're struggling and when we feel isolated, um, it's okay to take a pause. Nothing, nothing is permanent in, in what you do. And, and really, I think allowing others to support you in those moments is what kind of sustains us meaningfully in the long term. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, I know this wasn't the easiest conversation, but I do really appreciate you taking the time. No, and I sharing. appreciate the free therapy. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was it was so good to see you again too. It's um, I know it's been a while, but uh, you will forever be my favorite intern. So. <laughs> Thank you once again for listening. If you liked today's episode, please don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating or review so that other people can find us. Tune in in two weeks where I'll have another episode for you. And in the meantime, if you have someone you think would make a great guest or think you would be a great guest yourself, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram, Twitter, or send me an email at momsofmedicine at gmail.com.